You can grab your Bibles and go to the book of Matthew. And if you're using a, a chair Bible, um, you can turn to page 758. That is where we will be as we continue our study through the book of Matthew and look forward to being in God's Word this morning together. So uh, I've heard that, uh, that I'm supposed to be uh, in the midst of a midlife crisis at some point, either now or in the near future. Yeah, between the ages of 40 and 60, men and women um, are supposed to hit a point at which it's referred to as a midlife crisis. There's a, there's a point in time where you begin to, to really wrestle with uh, questions of identity and self-confidence and the quintessential picture is the you know, middle-aged guy who buys a sports car because he needs to increase his confidence. If you've done that, you're in the right place. No judgment here. But just know, I mean, that's kind of the picture, the common picture of the midlife crisis. And a midlife crisis is, if you, if you look at the term crisis, it's basically a point in time where you hit a, a point of significant or difficult decision. That's what crisis means. And there's a Greek word in the New Testament for judgment, which is actually where we get the word crisis. It's actually spelled K-R-I-S-I-S in the Greek. And so what that means is that when we're confronted with judgment in the scriptures, it quite literally creates a crisis point, like a, a, a judgment and decision point of what am I going to do in response to what I've heard? And there's a way in which like every sermon preached is, should be intended to create just that, like a crisis where faced with, in the face of what we deserve from God, namely judgment, that we, we turn into this decision to consider whether or not we'll surrender to Jesus and give our lives fully to him as a solution for our greatest problem. And that's really what we're going to see this morning. We're going to be looking at John the Baptist this morning. I want to do, I want to do something just real quickly because it illustrates the point and because in God's providence, I think it's really helpful to see. If you look at your Bible, most of your Bibles are going to have probably a single page in between your Old and New Testament. So if you're in the book of Matthew, it's the first book in the New Testament, most of you will have a single page in between Malachi that ends the Old Testament and Matthew that begins the New. So if you, if you just kind of look at it this way, you can see it. If you don't have one, you can just look at mine. Like this page right here symbolizes 400 years. So between the close of the Old Testament, Malachi is situated in our Bibles, helpfully, as the last book chronologically in the Old Testament and Matthew is the first in our New Testament. And so this page, you could say, represents the 400 years of silence between the, old te the close of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, the New Testament age where Jesus comes on the scene. And this morning, John the Baptist represents the first prophetic voice in 400 years to meet the ears of the Jewish people. And so there's something really interesting and notable that happens at the very end of the book of Malachi. So just go just to your left, probably just one or two pages. 
in the book of Malachi, I want us to start by reading this couple of verses because some of this wording will come up in John's message that we read in chapter 3. Look at the very end of Malachi, chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. It says this, and this is a promise, a future-looking promise from the close of the old. Malachi was written at the time of Nehemiah where the Jewish people had returned to Jerusalem were rebuilding the wall, and there's a forward-looking promise it says this, it says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. What's really interesting, at this point in history in Malachi, Elijah had already come hundreds of years before. So there's a different Elijah that's being promised in Malachi. And what we're going to see is that Elijah is John the Baptist. There's a, there's a prophet that's now on the scene as a forerunner to Jesus. And that's what we're going to see in the words, some of the words that are used in John's message. So let's go to chapter 3 in Matthew. Hopefully that framework will give us a little bit of bearing as we we hear some of the words that John uses. And, and y'all, I'll, I'll just say this. It's interesting to, you know, every, every Sunday I preach somebody else's message, namely God's. It's a, it's a unique moment to actually preach the words of somebody else's sermon, namely John's. And John would not get invitations to a TED Talk. He's just not that kind of preacher. And so there's some of what he says that I'm going to deliver to you that's uncomfortable. Because anytime we talk about judgment, we hear the words fire and being consumed and unquenchable fire, like it's, it's, it leads to a, a place of discomfort. But we're going to take God's word as it comes from him and from John the Baptist as he preached in those days. And let's read in chapter 3, verse 1. This is God's word for us. And this is what it says. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who is spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire, his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. I 
God, as we uh, try to take this section in, would you help us? The things that are hard for us to understand, would you give us wisdom and eyes to see? The things that are difficult for us to embrace and respond to, would you give us the humility and faith to do just that? To respond in obedience. And God, where we are met with a certainty of judgment because of our condition, would, would you just remind us of the sweetness of grace? Remind us of the sweetness of the gospel this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. So as we jump in, let's go back and just start at verse 1. We'll start marching down. So in the term in those days, um, it doesn't seem to be a marker or a time placement in this storyline. It doesn't seem to really connect from a, a date standpoint with anything we read in chapters 1 and chapter 2. It feels a little bit more like this, like in the days, kind of like in the days of the prophets of old, so in the days, like in the days of the prophets and like in the ways of the prophets, John the Baptist came preaching. It seems to be more connecting John and his style in this moment, the way he preached with a picture of the Old Testament, much like we just saw in the book of Malachi. There's a voice of one coming, and his message was short, and it was straightforward. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is here. It's at hand. The king and his kingdom are at the center of Matthew's gospel. We've seen that time and time again. It will continue to be a very vivid emphasis in this whole book. But the king is here. His kingdom is being ushered in. When John came preaching, his message was about the kingdom. As we've seen in the first couple of chapters, we see Jesus as this long-awaited king. And you see this in all types of places in the Old Testament. One of them we've looked at, and we'll look at again just briefly, is Isaiah chapter 9. When you look at Isaiah 9, just take note of the, the governmental kingdom-type language. This is a prophecy written some 700 years before Jesus was born. It says this, there's going to be a child who's going to be born, Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government, and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And so this is significant because the Israelites were expecting a coming king. Like they were expecting a king and a kingdom. Someone who would bring spiritual renewal and even political rescue. It's arguable that they were looking more for the latter because they were confused and largely rejected Jesus because they anticipated he would come to even crush the Roman Empire at the time. But John's message was, was clear, and this is my main point to you <clears throat> from his message, that the king is here. Turn to him and be changed. Like the king has arrived, so turn to him and be changed because the only right response to the arrival of a king is humble surrender and submission. Humble surrender and submission. And we're going to hear about repentance. We'll circle back to it toward the end. But repentance is this kind of wholesale change of mind and of heart that leads to a change of life. If you're to define repentance biblically, I would submit to you that's a fairly well-rounded definition. It's a change of mind and heart that leads to a changed life, a turning from self-rule and rebellion to turn to God, to allow him to rule and reign in your life 
in your heart, but repentance is a change of heart and mind that leads to a changed life. So we look in verse 3. It says, for this is he, I mean, meaning John the Baptist is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. This is a quote from Isaiah chapter 40. Matthew saying, John the Baptist is the one Isaiah spoke about in Isaiah 40, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So prophets were messengers who prepared the way of God and pointed the people back to God to obey him, to follow him, to surrender to him. Isaiah was that messenger, as was Elijah the prophet before him and others. And John the Baptist is now that messenger, a voice echoing the same message. And there's a way in which in the church age that we sit in now, and I'm not overstating my significance, when we stand here declaring the truth of God, we're echoing the same message, repeating the same message, surrender to the king. The king has come, turn to him and be changed. And so there's a way in which there's a prophetic voice coming from the preaching of God's word anytime it's opened and preached and declared. In Matthew chapter 17, Jesus talks about Elijah and John the Baptist, and he says it this way, just real briefly to connect again, John to Elijah in verse 9 of chapter 17. This is when James and Peter and John were coming down from the mountain where Jesus was transformed in their eyes. He was glorified for a moment, and this wonderful, crazy, beautiful transformation. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? So in light of Malachi 4, we read earlier, there was an anticipation that Elijah was going to come. That's what the text said, right? Elijah will come. So they were looking for that. And here's Jesus' response. In verse 11, he answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that Jesus was speaking to them of John the Baptist. John is another Isaiah. He's another Elijah. Declaring the truth of God and preparing the way of the Lord into human hearts and minds. Not only in message, but also in appearance. Verse 4 Seems to give us some random wardrobe and diet details of John. John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. This seems a little bit unimportant and random, but it's another connection that Matthew's making to Elijah because in 2 Kings 1.8, Elijah is stated to have worn a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. This wasn't cashmere, which I think is camel's hair, if I'm not mistaken. This is a different version of camel's hair, more of the pokey, rough kind. It was a rough outfit, just like his trying to get honey from from a beehive would have given him bee stings. Like this was not an acclamation of royalty or anything. John lived a unorthodox life. He wore unorthodox clothes. He ate unorthodox food. But maybe that's the point, right? And it's good for us to camp here just for a second. This isn't the primary um, purpose of this story, 
but I, I couldn't help but just be reminded that kingdom people look different to the world. When you're following the king and listening to his voice, there are going to be moments you look strange to the world, unorthodox, upside down from the ways of the world, much like John did, peculiar even. Walking with God often looks unorthodox. We'll often look void of comfort and appear plain. Like the Christian life may come across as just kind of basic to other people, right? But what looks plain to the world is actually the power of God at work in you. I was thinking about this this week, just trying to think through the practically what does this mean? It's like, like with, with your dress, like your clothing, with your, with your words, with your posture toward any number of things in your relationships, with your choices. You're going to be swimming upstream from your friends, your roommates, your classmates, because kingdom people look different than the world. When the kingdom of God comes, it changes us radically. It transforms us. And the world will try to convince you that you're missing out. You'll be left out at times, misunderstood, mischaracterized. But as a citizen of heaven, the Bible says that we understand that blessing comes from unlikely places. Like we'll see this in Matthew 5 and the Beatitudes in vivid color. That the blessing falls to the meek, to the peacemaker. The blessing falls to those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. The blessing comes to the merciful and the persecuted. It's not the things of this earth, but a thirst for the things of God that satisfies. And let me just pose a question to us. I'll just put it in the first person. Is my life conforming to the kingdom or to the culture? Is my life conforming to the kingdom or conforming to the culture? Like in big and in small ways, I think it's a good question for us to contemplate. How is my life being conformed to the image of the king? How is my life being conformed to the image of culture? And where you find yourself falling short, the call is to confess and repent. And that's what we see next in verse 5. It says, In Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. This is, a, this is remarkable. Like, so John's message brings about, quite literally, a revival among the Jews. So this simple, straight preaching causes the whole region to come out to John to get baptized, and they're confessing their sins. And historically, it's, it's probably helpful to, to frame in a little bit that there was a baptism that was present before New Testament Christian baptism. At this time in history, Jews would take part in ceremonial washings, like even immersions in water ceremonially. But normally, these baptisms took place, and this is really important, when a Gentile, a non-Jew, converted to Judaism. So there was a baptism of confession for sin where a, a non-Jew could become a Jew. And what's significant about that in this moment is they're coming out to John being immersed in the Jordan River, confessing their sin. And essentially what's being declared is I'm just as needy as the Gentiles. Like as a Jew, I have nothing that commends me to, to the sight of God. 
And so just like a Gentile, I come with empty hands and I need to confess my sin and to be made right with God. This is a really substantial work of God among the Jews. The humble confession and repentance of the Judean masses also stands in stark contrast to the religious elite who come out to observe and probably note and take back to their supervisors, as it were, the ways in which John was baptizing in the Jordan. That's what we see in verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And the implication is, hey, I didn't warn you. Who warned you? And he gives them this name, brood of vipers. We don't use the word brood very often. Your brood is is also translated generation or offspring or fruit in the New Testament. But essentially, John is saying this, you're the offspring of vipers. You're the sons of the serpent. You brood of vipers, who warned you of the wrath to come? And he's surprised, maybe in a sense, by their appearing. But he said, hey, while you're here, let me break it down for you. Let me tell you what you're not going to do in your coming, and let me tell you where life is truly found. It's not found in who you think you are apart from God, but it's found in repentance. But he says, they're the sons of the serpent. As I was studying this week, there's a lot of comments around this, but I couldn't help but make the connection to Genesis chapter 3. Often talk about this, and there's a reason for it, because really you see the, the beginning of the hostility between God and man starts in Genesis chapter 3. That's the fall where Adam and Eve rebel against God. They say, God, you're not going to rule over us. We're going to choose to do that which you said not to do. And all the good stuff you've given us, we're going to reject that and pursue the one thing you said we couldn't have. And in that, it captures the heart of sin. I don't want God to rule me. I want to rule myself. And as a result, man is separated from God. But there's a promise right in the beginning, right after that initial fall, And God says to the serpent, the one who was crafty and deceived Eve, he says, your seed and the woman's seed are going to have hostility between one another. And I couldn't help but think about in this moment, John says, you sons of the serpent, that those who come claiming that somehow there's salvation found in anything else other than Jesus, they're found to be the sons of the serpent the one with hostility to the, toward the one who is the ultimate fulfillment of what God speaks of in chapter 3 of the book of Genesis, this seed that would come who would crush the head of the serpent. And so he confronts them. He's like, don't suppose to yourself, just because you say you're Jewish, you have Abraham as your father, that you somehow get a free pass or that you're right with God. <clears throat> In the second half of John 8, Jesus tells his followers to abide in his word and how the truth of his word will set them free. But the prideful religious Jews basically said, hey, we have Abraham as our father. We've never been enslaved. Like, we're free. We don't need this freedom that you offer. And Jesus goes on to confront their confidence found in their ethnicity. In verse 38, he says this. He says, I speak of what I've seen with my father, and you, do, and you do what you've heard from your father. 
And they answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. And going on in verse 44, Jesus says this to them, you are of your father, the devil. Yikes, right? And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. Sons of the serpent. Here's how it summarizes the significance of this. The devil's greatest deception, hands down, is for men and women, children, cultures, people groups, and nations to believe that there's something else beside Jesus that provides forgiveness and salvation. That's the serpent's greatest deception. And these sons of the snake, sons of the serpent, come assuming that their ethnicity and national tradition, adherence to customs and things, was enough to get them by. But John says, don't put your trust in your ethnicity and your pedigree, your family, your national origin. Don't suppose it's enough to claim Abraham is your father. It's not enough to be Jewish. It doesn't matter if you're religious. You may adhere to traditions and customs. You may know what the Bible says, but that doesn't make you a child of God. God can make children for Abraham out of stones. Your outward behavior doesn't make you a son. The kingdom of heaven doesn't work that way. Well, how does it work? You need to repent. Have a change of mind and a change of heart that leads to a changed life. Repent and believe and live a life that demonstrates that repentance. Turn to the king and be changed. Here's what I'd say as we evaluate our own hearts. The self-righteous heart argues with God. I have Abraham as my father. And you can fill in the blank with whatever thing you might think commends you in the sight of God or of others. But the self-righteous heart argues with God and says, I have fill in the blank, and that's where my confidence lies. The repentant heart agrees with God that I have sinned and I am a sinner. That's what confession is, is to agree with God that something is wrong. It's not aligned with his word. So when they came confessing their sins, there was this acknowledgement that they had sinned and fallen short of God's standard and were coming to find forgiveness from him. Like the old song says, nothing in my hands I bring, but simply to the cross I cling. And even now, the arrival of the king is causing the utter collapse of any notions of self-righteousness in this story, like an axe poised for one final swing at the root of a tree. And that's the picture that John gives. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. His first allusion to fire comes again in a little bit. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. The baptism of Jesus by the Holy Spirit and fire is a baptism or immersion into the power in life of God that brings about a change of mind and a change of heart and leads to a changed life. 
So there's a way in which the baptism of fire is not just speaking of judgment, it's talking about purification and the life of the one submitted to Jesus. R.C. Sproul put it this way. He says, we as believers have been baptized by God's spirit. And that baptism is a baptism of fire. This fire cleanses us. It purges and purifies us. And it produces what the cross was designed to produce, the pure gold of sanctification. Sanctification is a big word. It essentially means to be increasingly conformed to the image of Jesus. And here's what I want to say. Anytime we talk about walking the Christian life and being purified and holiness and righteousness, there's a temptation somewhere in the room or in our hearts to be dismissive of that, like it doesn't sound like grace enough. And I want to just say something to address that for a moment. John says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. He doesn't say say bear fruit in keeping with perfection. However, before we give ourselves a free pass, what repentance does look like is increasingly we look more and more like Jesus. That's what the Holy Spirit does. By and by, over the course of our lives, we increasingly are conformed into the image of Jesus and our decisions and our passions and our priorities and our words and our dress and the way we relate to others and on and on the list goes. It doesn't mean perfection. It means progress in the faith. Because what else would we expect when the God of the universe comes into a human heart but to change us, right? That's the hope of the believer. Like You can look more like Jesus tomorrow than you do today. That should make you smile because the grace of God will still be active for you tomorrow just like it is today. The work that he began in you however long ago when you first came to faith, he'll be faithful to complete it until the day that Jesus returns. Is that good news for anybody? So you feel defeated this morning? You get to get up once more, hurl yourself on the grace of God and be empowered by the same to go and be changed. Have a change of might change of mind, change of heart that leads to a changed life. And just like John's message prepared the way for Jesus, John's baptism pointed to Jesus. John 1.31 says, for this purpose I came baptizing with water, it's John the Baptist speaking, that Jesus might be revealed to Israel. John rejoiced at seeing people going to Jesus to get baptized. There was a point in time in their ministry they were both baptizing people. And the number of people going to Jesus began to slide over and against John. And people came like, hey, Jesus is baptizing more people than you. And he's like, let him increase, let me decrease. And anyone who serves God in any capacity, any usability you find in your life, let that be our anthem. May the glory of Jesus increase and let me decrease. Amen? It's a sub-message in this message from John. It's interesting to know, this is the way the kingdom works. Jesus said this about John. This is pretty good on your resume. He says, truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no greater, no one greater than John the Baptist. That's pretty high words of praise. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than him. That's the nature of the kingdom. It's upside down from the ways of the world. 
And John says it himself. He says, I'm the lowliest of servants. Only the lowliest of servants would untie the sandals of someone who came into the home. But John says, I'm not even worthy to untie Jesus' sandals. Let him increase, let me decrease. Let me close with this in verse 12. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor and gather his weed into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. The main point of this whole text is the king is here. Turn to him and be changed. Now there is a finality about this language and there's no little discomfort about the language. But when the work of our life is done, when all the sowing is complete, whether to the spirit or to the flesh, to the kingdom or to the culture, make no mistake about it, there will be a harvest. And this picture of the the winnowing fork is a picture of separation that you see in other ways in the Bible. You see it in the picture of the sheep and the goats. The imagery is a winnowing fork or pitchfork that gathers up the wheat, throws it in the air, and what falls to the ground is the heavier part of the wheat that's going to be bundled up. And the chaff, the unusable part, is blown by the wind only to be swept up and burned by the fire. It's very vivid imagery of judgment, and it's inescapable in this text. I can't water it down. I can't make it say something it doesn't say. We don't like to hear about judgment. We'd rather hear about grace. But family, like, the good news is only good because the bad news. Like, grace is only amazing because of the judgment that we deserve. Like mercy is only overwhelming because we deserve the wrath of God and he withholds from us what we actually deserve, namely his judgment. We are spared from God himself, ultimately. The one who with his winnowing fork will bundle the wheat and burn with unquenchable fire the chaff. And the wheat are those who have turned to the king in repentant faith the chaff for those who have turned away from the king in independent defiance. John's simple sermon is repent for the kingdom of heaven is here. And I believe God states clearly in his word in this place and in many places, if you don't repent, if you don't turn from your sin and turn to the king, there is a certainty of judgment. Because how else could God be a righteous judge if he doesn't judge the breaking of his law? But if you repent, if you turn from your sin and turn to the king, there's the certainty of grace. If you don't, there's a certainty of judgment. But thanks be to God that if you turn to the king and you repent and live a life in keeping with repentance, there's a certainty of grace. We're going to sing a song in just a moment. Some of this imagery is in the song and words are there. If you're in this room and you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian, maybe you don't even know where, maybe you don't know where you are with God. You're still trying to figure out questions of your faith. Let me just commend you with a couple things. Let me just assure you that you are not nearly as broken as you think you are, or you're more broken than you think you are, better yet. Like God is much more gracious than we ever could imagine. We're much more sinful than we ever thought possible. But my encouragement to you is rise and go to him. Like, go to him. Like, run to God and find 
forgiveness. Confess your sin. Confess your desperate need of forgiveness. Walk to him in your weariness and find him ready to save you. There will be a day where every eye will see him and every knee will bow. And at that moment, in that day, there will be no more time left to repent. And God has given you this day that he has made that you might respond. Respond. That's why the word turn is there. Turn. The king has arrived. Turn to him and be changed and be forgiven, be saved and secured. Today is the day of salvation. Let he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Christian in this room, church family, the world still needs to see us living lives of repentance. We still have need of repentance. Live a life in keeping with repentance. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. We're those who have repented, but we have turned from our sin and turned to God. But bearing fruit consistent with repentance is an ongoing, lifelong work. Keep confessing your sin. Keep turning from your sin. Keep turning to God. Move away from it and move toward God every single day. Examine your heart. Keep running to Jesus. Keep finding him gracious. Keep allowing him to refine you. And the wondrous promise of God is that not only has the king come, but your king is still here. Your king is still here. Keep turning to him and keep being changed. Amen? Amen. Let's pray for that. I invite the worship team up. God, we, uh, we can't even trust our own hearts and our own minds to be able to evaluate our lives clearly and effectively. So God, would you, through your spirit, through your word, examine us in ways that we just simply can't and expose the things that need to be exposed, align the things that need to be aligned. And God, we thank you that through the finished work of Jesus, through his perfect life lived in our place, through his death on the cross as our substitute, and through his death conquering resurrection, that we have the hope of eternal life. Thank you that we have somewhere to go to find forgiveness. And I pray that like the Judean masses who went out to John's baptism, that you would find us as your people running to you, turning to you, that we might continually be changed. Thank you that we have the promise through the Holy Spirit the power of the Holy Spirit that can change us and make us more like Jesus in increasing degrees over the course of our lives. The world needs to see, Jesus, that you make a difference. Make us different. Help us to be different. As kingdom people, help us to prioritize the things of the kingdom, not the things of the culture. Help us to, would you help loosen our hands from the things of the world, that we would cling more to the things of heaven, that we desire more the things of heaven than the things of earth that the world would see that you are more desirable than gold, more desirable than anything else this world has to offer. Jesus, thank you that you are a faithful high priest, and because you are alive, you always live to pray for us. And oh, how we need you to pray for us. How we need your help, more so than we know. So as we sing this song, may it give us sweet, fresh encouragement. 
that sinners are still invited to come to you and still amply receive grace in your presence. And we love you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's go ahead and stand together. We'll see.